Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. And uh, let me add my welcome. It's good to see so many of you here, especially uh, those who are here for the first time or one of the first times. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Please keep your Bibles open at uh, page five, and we'll be spending some time there together in uh, the, this opening book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We may even have a slide that says uh, Genesis rooted in God's reality. Um, let me start. Émile Cahiers was a French philosopher. He was born in the 1890s. He was brought up as an atheist, and he had very little interest in God. In fact, he had never seen a Bible until his adult life, and he totally dismissed the Christian faith. When he was 19 years old, World War I began, and Cahiers was called up and served as an infantryman. And in the dreadful trenches of the First World War, he reflected on his thinking and on his worldview and his philosophy, and he found that it was deeply lacking. He asked some of the big questions. Where did life come from? What did it all mean, if anything? What value are scientific theories in the face of reality, especially the reality of war? And he wrote these words. I felt that I was destined to perish miserably when the time came. Now, Kaye began to yearn in the trenches for what he called a book that would understand me. He was a highly educated man and well-read, but he didn't know of any such book. So when he was wounded and released from the army, he went back home and returned to his studies with a new goal. He was going to write the book. He would prepare such a book in secret for his own use. So he studied and studied. And whenever he found a particularly wise or powerful or inspiring passage or quotation, he would copy it into a leather-bound book, and he hoped that this, these quotations, which are very carefully indexed and numbered, would lead him to uh, enlightenment and joy. At last, the day came when Kaye put the finishing touches to his book, the book that would understand me. He went out and sat down under a tree on his own, and he opened it and began to read. But instead of feeling free and joyful, he actually felt terribly disappointed. He realized that the passages in the book simply reminded him of his quest for enlightenment. They could not set him free. The book did not understand him. It was a book of his own making. It had no power. And he was absolutely dejected and put the book to one side. Now, at that very moment, his wife came along She'd been down in the village, and she told him an interesting story. She'd been walking around in the village and stumbled upon a small Protestant church. She'd never been into it before, but she decided for some reason that she would go in that day. And she met an old man and started talking to him. turned out he was the pastor of this church, and he gave her a French Bible. Now, she felt rather embarrassed telling all this to her husband because she knew his feelings about Christianity. But this day was different. He was suddenly interested. A Bible, you say? Where is it? Show me. I've never seen one before. And he grabbed it off her and started to read. And this is what happened next in his own words. I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes. This is part of the Bible, Jesus' teaching. 
I read and read and read, now reading aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I couldn't find words to express my awe and wonder, and suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, yet unaware I'd attempted to write my own in vain. I continued to reap, to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke aloud and acted in them, became alive to me. Jesus Christ became alive to him through that book. The circumstances amid which the book had found me now made it clear that while it seemed absurd to speak of a book understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. To this God I prayed that night and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in that book. He'd found a book that understands me. Now that's the Bible. It tells us the truth about God, about the universe and about ourselves if we have ears to hear it. The Bible is like a majestic symphony. Do you ever listen to Beethoven? Dun, 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 dun. It starts with a kind of opening movement and in the opening movement the themes are announced that are going to be played out and developed all the way through the symphony. Dun, 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 dun. You know how it goes. The grand themes are introduced, and the book of Genesis shows us how we can root our lives in God's reality. Now, in the first two chapters, we learn all about the loving God and his good creation. We learn about our humanity, our being, what kind of creatures we are made in God's image. We learn about our purpose to have meaningful activity in this world, to fill it, to rule it, and to serve God in it. And we learn about our need for community. We're not made to be alone. We had specific teaching about marriage, the foundation of society. You could say that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 portray human life as it was meant to be. But now in chapter 3, as you've Red, as Rich read earlier, a dark shadow falls across the page. And it's a shadow that will dominate the landscape of the Bible until the very last pages, when light gloriously comes. Here in chapter 3, we learn about temptation, thought about that last week, sin, and judgment. Very interesting, Mike and Mel, I didn't know you were going to talk about sin and shame, but that is right here in Genesis 3. You could say that Genesis 3 portrays why life sometimes feels it wasn't meant to be like this. Ever feel that? It wasn't meant to be like this. What went wrong? Genesis 3 explains that sin entered the world through the disobedience of the first human beings. And through that came death. Sin entered the world and through that came death. And this uh, passage of the Bible is sometimes called the fall. In fact, if you look there at the Above chapter 3, those words have been inserted. This isn't in the original text. Uh, it's so often called that that they've, they've labeled it the fall. Now, just think about that for a moment. Is that the best way to describe what happens here? What image does a fall conjure up in your mind? I'm not going to fall on the ground. I did that two weeks ago. It doesn't really do justice to the severity and the magnitude 
of what happens in chapter 3. The preacher and the writer, Steve Timmis, says that the, calling it the fall is entirely inadequate. He suggests a better way to describe this is a decreation. A decreation. Why? Because in this chapter, the enemy of God, in the guise of a snake, is not just seeking to trip the humans up so they fall. This snake is actually Satan, a spiritual being who has gone dark and wants to undo everything that God has put together. He wants to wreck it, smash it, pervert it, destroy it, twist it, pollute it, ruin it. This is a subversive attack to take down everything that God has set up. And so sin enters the world. Now this is where it leads, because I know at the moment it's been kind of abstract. This is these are some questions that were written by a man called Ravi Zacharias. And I know some of us here are younger, but we live in the real world. Who can explain Susan Smith heartlessly drowning her two young children, supposedly to perpetuate a love affair? Who can explain the animalistic cannibalism of Jeffrey Dahmer, who killed and ate men that he picked up in bars? Who can explain the cold-hearted murder of their parents by Lyle and Eric Menendez? Who can explain the brutal beating and killing of a little two-year-old boy at the hands of a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old in Liverpool? Who can explain the dreadful crimes against at least two teenage girls in Ontario when Paul Bernardo tortured, raped and mutilated them while the sister of one of the victims watched and filmed it for their later viewing pleasure? The list seems to be endless and sickening. How will we give an answer for this? Now that is decreation. That's why when we talk about this, we're not talking about some distant theological thing in the front of the Bible. It is real and it affects our lives every moment of every day. The undoing of all that God has put together. This is what happens when sin enters the world. Sin. Nowadays, the language of sin is, is reserved for talking about puddings. You know, a sinful double chocolate tart laced with cream and a sinful sprinkling of strawberries and black pepper. It's absolutely trivial compared to what the Bible means by sin, which is cosmic treason, breaking God's law, and then breaking ourselves. So our text today, I think it wants to make us stop in our tracks. I think it wants to bring us to our senses, to hold up a spotlight so that we can see the hurt and devastation that sin causes in the world, and to hold up a mirror so that we look in it and we see our own hearts and the sin in our own lives and we take it more seriously, to make us yearn for a better tomorrow and to prepare our hearts to be done with sin, to repent of it and turn away from it, and to prepare our hearts for a rescuer. That's what we want to get to today. We learn that sin, it wasn't supposed to be like this. It leads to breakdown in three areas. Social breakdown, physical breakdown, and spiritual breakdown. First of all, social breakdown. Social breakdown. At the decreation, community undergoes a collapse. There's a social breakdown. At the heart of Adam and Eve's disobedience of God is a relationship crisis. They were made to love and trust God, but now trust breaks down. And that strikes at the heart of community. If you can't trust someone, 
How can you have a relationship? This is something that Melissa and I have constantly over the years emphasized to our children. The worst thing you can do is lie to us. The worst thing is not the thing you've done, but the lie you told about it. Because if we, can't, if we don't know you're telling the truth, we can't have a relationship. Adam and Eve had fallen even before they ate the fruit, the moment they believed that God was lying. Satan had claimed they couldn't trust God. He implied that God's word was a lie. You won't really die. And God didn't really want the best for them. You know why he doesn't want you to eat the fruit? It's because then you'll be like him. You'll know all these things that he doesn't want you to know. He hinted that God has a hidden agenda. God wants to promote himself at your expense. So Satan says, God knows you will be like him. Now what does this imply? It implies that God's a liar, a manipulator. Perhaps he's driven by jealousy or a superiority complex. So the community of human beings and God, which up to this point were living in harmony, is now breaking down. Adam stands by and says nothing. And then the community breakdown is confirmed when Eve eats and Adam eats. And that eating is a commitment to remake the human community around a satanic view of God. And as they rebel against community with God, they rebel against God's purpose for each other. They replace the aspects of community that God's put in place with human-centered principle. Their word now will be the final arbiter. Their judgment will mediate what's good and bad. And their glory will be at the center. So God's purpose, which is to bring glory to himself, the supremely beautiful and worthy one through human relationships, is now replaced by a human agenda to work for their own glory and their own reputation. Now what does this human-centered community now look like? Sociologist Dr. Johnny Woodrow says that it's characterized by codependency, blame, and shame. Codependency is excessive reliance on a partner. It can occur when the partner is an addict or needs a lot of support due to illness. The heart of codependency is that both parties are saying, I need you to need me. So the partnership isn't really about true self-giving so much as self-fulfillment through that other person. It makes me think I can be the Lord and Savior of that person. I need them to need me so that I can fulfill myself. I can be like God. When they turn their backs on God, Adam and Eve become codependent. They choose their own route to self-fulfillment, eating the forbidden fruit. Not an apple, by the way, a fruit, which promises to make them godlike, but it does nothing of the kind. In fact, it almost destroys their marriage. They feel shame for the first time. In verse 7, it says, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's going on here? This is a married couple. Why are they covering up? Because now they have something to hide. They have shame. And they try and make coverings with fig leaves, which apparently don't make very good clothes. This is all about covering shame with a facade. Ever done that? Having a furious argument with your spouse, someone from church comes to the front door, hi! (laughs) Covering shame with a facade, a mask. We all know that we've got something deeply wrong with us. We're all ashamed of something. 
You know, if we shone up on the screen every website that you'd looked at in the last year, you might not stay to the end of the service. Human communities respond by hiding, by creating good appearances. This is why you care so much about what your neighbours think of you, or your colleagues, or your boss. This is why some of you can't admit that you struggle with pornography. Although, if statistics are to be believed, a high proportion of the men in this church do struggle with pornography. This is why some of you can't admit that your marriage is in trouble, and you won't reach out for help. You might not reach out for help until it's too late. You know you need help, but you can't lose face. You're covering up with fig leaves to hide your shame. Woodrow says, shame cultures manage shame. They cover it up. Secrecy, payoffs, scapegoating, and slandering the reputation of others. The communities are then overrun with gossip, reputation slander, reputation protection, threats, violence, honor killing. It's all because underneath, someone somewhere is protecting their shame. I spoke this week to one of our mission partners, Daniel. He works in North India in a very uh, remote part of the world that hasn't heard much about Christianity. A woman from one of the villages came to one of Daniel's prayer meetings. She came to a prayer meeting. She went home, and her brother and her mum beat her, poured kerosene on her, and tried to set her on fire because she's brought shame on the family by going to a prayer meeting. Then when God challenges them, these partners respond with blame. You know the story. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. The serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Remember what God had warned about the fruit. Now here, Adam blames his wife. Look at it, will you? Um, Where is it? Verse uh, 10. Adam says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said... Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Of course, God knows the answer. This is a classic parent-child interaction. Have you done the thing I told you not to? I know you have. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. You see what he's trying to do here? He's actually attempting to get her killed to manage his own shame when what they've done has gone public. Back in chapter 2, he's writing poetry. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she came from man. He starts the solo. He's waving waving his lighter in the air. He's so in love. Chapter 3, I know there's a death sentence of those who disobey you. By the way, she gave me the fruit. This is the first attempt at an honor killing. The woman must bear the brunt of the shame of the family. This is community as shame management. It's the first level of breakdown that's caused by the decreation. You're starting to feel how heavy this is? Human community can't hold together, whereas the marriage level, family level, society level, or between nations. You know, we've all been... Uh, uh, our country was almost divided down the middle on the issue of Brexit earlier this year. The voting was something like 48 52%. And both sides think ill of each other, I, I've tended to observe can't hold together. Social breakdown. Codependence, shame and blame. Okay, the second area of of, uh, decreation is physical breakdown. There's another consequence to sin entering the world. 
It's the creation itself is affected by human's disobedience in some profound ways. It wasn't supposed to be like this. After Adam blames the woman, she blames the snake, and then God's pronouncements begin. And these are a mixture of a, a, a statement of judgment and the actual consequences of it. So there are three separate pronouncements, the snake, the woman, and Adam. They come in reverse order. Look with me at verse 14 and 15, the snake. The Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now that's not a good relationship with creation, is it? Something has changed. Creation is affected. There's now enmity. There's an ongoing battle. The world is no longer a safe place. And now we're a bit immune from this in the UK. But just ask Rich, Cherie and their kids about the kind of creatures that are in Australia. Rich told me that every child in Australia is constantly told don't go into the long grass. I remember taking them to a park here in England, Old Moat Park, and they nervously looking at the kids going in the long grass and saying, are you sure it's safe? So the only thing to be worried about in Old Moat Park is the people. <laughs> the presence of death is not very far away. Rich's father's house has deadly spiders living on the garage door. Now, we get a hint about this change in the world in Genesis chapter 9. This is Noah after uh, the great flood. We'll hopefully get to that in a few weeks. Um, we read about God blessing Noah. Now, you see here, there's some things that get carried forward from Adam and Eve, and some things have changed. So this is like a bit of a game here. We're going to spot the difference, okay? God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Sound familiar? Yes. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth. That's different. And on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and all the fish in the sea, they're given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. Every anim animals will take your life. And from each human being too, I'll demand an accounting for the life. This is a different tone here. Things have changed. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So we still bear the image of God, but something has changed. This is the world we now live in. It's still a place of great beauty and great abundance. But it has earthquakes it has famines, it has pestilence, it has disease, it has wasps. Things rot, rust, and decay. Things fall apart. It wasn't supposed to be like this. St. Paul writes that the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We're on the brink of stuff here that the Bible only hints at, that in the world to come, the creation itself will be renewed gloriously. It will no longer be a place of hardship and decay, but endlessly renewed. So, um, physical breakdown. The snake. Then there's the woman. Verse 16 says, uh, I'll read it. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What is this saying? Something has changed in women's experience of bearing children. Pains in childbearing, which also then covers painful labor and birth, seems to refer to the anxiety that women experience through the whole process of childbearing. And you know how this plays out. Anxiety about whether she will be able to conceive a child or not. The pain and discomfort of pregnancy, which sometimes can be terrible. Anxiety concerning the health of a child in the womb. Sometimes that's actually made worse by technology. Anxiety about whether she will survive the birth and whether the baby will, whether it will be born healthy. And I, most women I've ever met who've had children, I've observed that the anxiety doesn't stop once the child is born. Can I ask a question to any mothers here? Hands up if you've stopped being anxious about your children. Interesting. And I think my wife and I love our children equally. But I get really anxious about the church. My job. She gets really anxious about the kids. Never stops. There's a physical effect. There's something happening here. The decreation in women's experience of this crucial area of life. The thing that no man can ever do, and let's hope they never find a way to do it. (laughs) Imagine the moaning if men could give birth. Conceive and carry children. It is fraught with anxiety. What about the last part of verse 16? Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. A lot of ink has been spilt about this. Many people have taken the desire there to mean a desire to dominate the husband, And I used to think that's what it meant. But this very unusual word for desire only occurs three times in the Bible. Here's one of them. The next one's in chapter 4, and the other time is in Song of Songs. And it doesn't have a clear meaning of dominion, of trying to dominate somebody. It seems to refer more to instincts, basic primal instincts. Now, if that's the case, then what this is saying is that the judgment of God affects the woman's maternal instinct It's not to say that all women want children, because they don't. And it doesn't mean that the Bible says that all women have to have children, because it doesn't. But many women do have a strong maternal instinct. You can see it in in young girls. And this has took some leading feminists by surprise after the 60s and 70s, where they thought that would be done away with. Actually, there's a strong kind of inbuilt instinct in many women. And the critical thing here that's gone wrong is that the woman desires the husband because he, 
The man is the only way to fulfill that instinct, that desire for children. And men exploit the situation for their own ends. You know how that works. So the domination here is on the part of men. He will rule over you. This is not a good rule. They'll misuse and exploit women sexually and in other ways. That's decreation. Then there's the man himself, verse 17 to 19. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. Through painful toil you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. What is this teaching? Something has changed as a result of the fall. Work, which was meant to be rewarding, meaningful activity, has now been blighted. The first people who read this were mostly agricultural workers, and they knew all about thorns, thistles, and the sweat of your brow. Now, we are a little bit removed from the struggle for food in our very prosperous Western economy. I know that the queue in Aldi on a Sunday afternoon can be pretty intense, but it hardly compares to scratching out a living through agricultural labor. As a man used to come to this church, an Irishman who came to this country 30-odd years ago, and he told me that his first job here was to walk behind a tractor somewhere in the Midlands, picking up stones that were being plowed and throwing them into a vehicle. Picking up stones for eight or ten hours a day. Now that is a kind of cursed work, isn't it? That's how you're going to eat the sweat of your brow. Back-breaking, boring work. And even if your job is interesting and absorbing, and if, if it is, you're one of the very small number of people in the world for whom it is, you experience frustration, don't you? Constant frustration. Those of you who are teachers, think about those kids who you have to look at tomorrow morning. Don't think about them. Forget them. Those of you who are doctors, those of you who work in business, our work is no longer a joy for most of us. And if, you, if you're doubting me, just, just let me ask. If I gave you a million pounds today, would you carry on doing your job for very long? There's been a breakdown there. Okay, thirdly and quickly, spiritual breakdown. Spiritual breakdown. They're sent out from the presence of God east of Eden. Now, there's not much detail about this spiritual breakdown. I just want to uh, point out a few glimmers that are in the text. Um, you can glimpse what's going on spiritually with human beings. There's, first of all, as we've already commented, the hiding from God. There's a relationship breakdown. Somebody once said, the most poignant question in the whole Bible is God's question in Genesis 3. Where are you? Where are you? Of course, he knows where they are. It's a relationship question. And perhaps uh, you're here today as somebody who doesn't really know God, but you're curious about him. You don't trust him and love him. You're here because you want to find out more. God would ask you, where are you? in relationship to him. And you need to answer that. 
Adam's answer was, I was afraid. I was afraid when I heard you because I could no longer look you in the face. He was shamed, afraid and guilty. So they were shut out. It says they went out to the east, east of Eden, and the, guard, the, the, the gateway to the garden is closed uh, with uh, guardians. They're cut off from the source of life, source of human flourishing from God himself, and a dark shadow falls on humanity. God's anger, his right wrath, now rests on humanity, and we all experience alienation from him. We are in exile by nature. Our hearts are restless, and they only find their rest in him. Much later on in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says these words. Consider the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Consider his sternness, but also his kindness, because here we see, in this most dark chapter in the Bible, there are glimmers of light, and God shows grace, even at the lowest point. Turn over the page. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. They think Eve's name probably means living. Now there's some grace. The the sentence of death didn't fall on them immediately. They're given time to bear children and for the human race to continue. That is grace. The next verse says that the Lord God made garments of skin for them and clothed them. Now there's a very fatherly action. They are ill-equipped for the harsh world outside the garden. Those fig leaves are not going to cut it in the storms and the, the hard conditions. So God clothes them himself. He shows grace to them and mercy. He even protects them from themselves in the garden of these two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, which seems to guarantee that life could keep going on if you ate from it. God says, we can't let them eat from that because their life will just go on forever and ever in a kind of endless moan. Keep them out. They're not able to eat it anymore. But as well as clothing them and allowing them to live and protecting them, God makes a promise. It's very subtle. We read right over it, back in verse 15, and I want to finish here. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, on one level, this is about opposition between certain kinds of dangerous animals and human beings. On another level, it's about evil in the world and humanity's struggle against that. But when it gets down to a single person, he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. We're wondering who that snake crusher could be. And if you've read the whole Bible, you know the answer. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to take a hit for us. He took the, the, the venom. He died. He, was, he experienced God's curse. But in doing that, he broke the power of sin, death, and Satan. So, let me finish with a question. What is your relationship to your sin? How do you view it? Do you see its character now more clearly? Think of sin in its true colors. And think 
consider the kindness of God. Because of Jesus, we no longer have to hide. Because of Jesus Christ, our shame is taken away. He took it on himself. Because of Jesus Christ, we're not guilty. Our debt is paid. And if by faith you stand in grace, then put aside your sins. Turn away from them. Throw off everything that hinders you in the race of faith and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for you. As we look forward to the day when we meet Jesus face to face and we thank him. Though we were weak and orphans, lost and wicked, he loved us so much that he gave himself for us. Let's have a moment of silence and then I'll pray. And then musicians, will you come and play our final song? Thank you. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Heavenly Father, we've read some somber words today. We realize afresh the gravity of our own sins And we realize what it cost you and the Lord Jesus to put things right. We acknowledge that our world is a very messed up place and we don't see half of it living in this comfortable country. We yearn for the day when you'll set things to right, globally, cosmically, and personally. And we thank you that in this meantime, you've established us as a community of light, shining here, in urban South Manchester, for the glory of Jesus. Help us to confess our sins to one another, not to hide under a facade of fig leaves. Help us to be people of grace who don't despise someone who's sinned, but restore them carefully. And help us to walk with you day by day for our good and for your glory. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.